0: How many have read uh, John Bunyan's 1600s classic, The Pilgrim's Progress? Some good hands. Great. For those of you who haven't, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It's a story of a man called Christian and his friend Faithful who are making their way from uh, a particularly uh, vile city to the celestial city. And it's a narrative, it's a way of telling the story of the Christian life. And along the way, Christian and faithful, they come against different battles, different obstacles in their way, different blessings. But at one point, they come across a town called Vanity. And Vanity has an unending fear going on. This is Vanity Fair. And yes, that is where the magazine gets its name from. And inside this city called Vanity, the fear, and John Bunyan says, at this fear, All such things are sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts, such as wives and husbands and children and servants, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. Everything is for sale at Vanity Fair. Whatever your heart's desire, whatever pleasure you want, it is there at Vanity Fair. And as Christian faithful enter this city, they start walking through, trying to get to the other side, trying to get through it so they can get to heaven. And then all the people of Vanity Fair come up to them and say, do you want to buy this? Do you want this? Surely you want this. Oh, this will make you feel good. Come and take this. And they put their fingers in their ears and they go, no, 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 no. You have nothing we want here. You have nothing we want here. We're going to a better city. And that throws Vanity Fair into complete confusion people are just gobsmacked what you have we have nothing that you want here this is vanity fear everything that you want is here but they say no and so they're seized and they are thrown uh, they're taken to court and they are they are judged for for disrupting the fear and they're found guilty The wicked judge, he calls Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, two characters that we're gonna meet over the next two weeks. He calls them as witnesses and says, look, just as Nebuchadnezzar and Darius threw people to the lions and into the fire for for not bowing down to idols, so we are gonna kill you for not bowing down in vanity fear. And faithful is killed, but God helps Christian escape and make it to the celestial city. Pilgrim's Progress is a stirring allegory. It's a powerful story. But unlike faithful and Christian who, who enter Vanity Fear and try and get through it, they enter this place once to get to the other side, it's not like that for us in reality. Vanity Fear isn't a place where we go through to get somewhere else. We live there. We live there every single day And we fight against the pleasures and the lusts and what the world is telling us is important and what we need to do, how we need to live. It's not a place we visit once. We swim in the waters of a world captivated by self. Radical individualism. Autonomy is king. In a world of cancel culture, a hyper-sexed environment, gender wars, where positive experiences and good feelings are king and everything must be done to reject negativity, feeling bad, disappointment. There is no room for the cross of Christ and the call to deny yourself anything in this world that we live in. So how do we make sense of it? How do we as followers of Jesus live in such a world as this and not be influenced by it? and not be affected by it. Well, over the next 10 weeks, we're going to explore this through looking at the ancient book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel and his experience of living in Babylon. I just want to take a quick moment to say how amazing is our graphic designer, Andrea Walker, Andrea Muller, sorry, Uh, hand-drawn. She did all of that. So if you see Andrea around, uh, definitely give her a high five or something else. And what we're going to see as we look through Daniel is a key theme. A key theme of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. As we spend the next 10 weeks looking at this book, what I want us to remember every time is that God is sovereign. Over all kingdoms, over all rulers, over all empires, over everything, God is sovereign. And that is hinted at in verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1 where it says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Daniel says this, there was an upset that happened in the kingdom at the time. And Daniel says the Lord made it happen. The Lord disestablished this ruler and and raised up this ruler. God does as he pleases. All earthly kingdoms will pass away. But once his kingdom is fully established, it will never pass away. And our hope is as we spend the next 10 weeks going through this book, it will cause us to worship God, trust in Him more, particularly as we see culture going a certain way, nations in distress, that we would rest in the sovereignty of God. And I pray that for people in Myanmar today and in India and in South Africa and other countries that Christians would know God is sovereign. So important thing to do when we start any book but particularly an old testament book is that this is happening in a place and culture and context that we know very little about so we're going to take a little bit of time this morning just to go through we're going to try and understand this this time and place that daniel was living in for those of you who love history you are just going to love the next few minutes for those of you who don't please just bear with me it's really really important so many theologians would agree that Daniel is one of the most important books in the whole Bible. And kind of, it's always painted as a bit of a, a kid's story, right? It's like a Sunday school favorite. Ooh, the lion's den. Ooh, the big flaming furnace. But it's, it's not so much a Disney classic as it is a mixture of a drama mixed with horror and thriller and sci-fi. This is an incredible, incredible book. And the American preacher John MacArthur says, you can look at it like Revelation. What Revelation is to the New Testament, Daniel is to the old. There's so much richness involved in it, and it's broken up into two sections. The 12 chapters, the first six are narrative, and the last six are prophetic vision. So that's the split, six and six. There's some contention around exactly who wrote Daniel. Skeptics would say that Because Daniel's prophecies were so accurate, as we'll see in the next 10 weeks, Daniel had some unbelievably accurate prophecies about kingdoms that would rise, kingdoms that would fall. They said there's no way someone could have known that in advance. It must have been written uh, um, retrospectively. So skeptics would say that, but most evangelical theologians agree Daniel wrote it and that it was written about 530 B.C. Daniel's writing this at the end of his life. He's looking back over his life, and he's going, these are all the things that happened over my lifetime. So around 530 B.C., and Jesus actually affirms authorship. In Matthew 24, 15, Jesus is talking to the people, and he says, as spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So in that moment, Jesus says, the book of Daniel, written by Daniel. The book starts with uh, Daniel one uh, chapter, uh, Daniel 1, one in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. That puts us at about 605 B.C. So at the very start of Daniel, we're at 605 B.C. And if you want to read more around what's happening at this time, you can read 2 Kings 24. That tells the story of what's happening. And we're right at the end of Judah's dynasty. We're right at the end of pretty much Israel as we know it. Israel had gone through generation after generation, evil king, evil king, evil king. They'd been split into the northern and the southern kingdom, the north being Israel, the south being Judah, and they just had terrible king after terrible king after terrible king. And there were prophets that came and said, Israel, Judah, repent, turn back to God, or something terrible is going to come. You're going to be exiled. You're going to be Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Turn back to him, turn back to him. And they didn't. There was one final good king, King Josiah. He purged the land of idolatry. He purged the land of shrine prostitution. He discovered the word of God and drew Judah's hearts back to the Lord again. And the interesting thing is Daniel would have spent the first 10, likely spent the first 10 years of his life under Josiah. First 10 years of Daniel's life would have been wonderful under a righteous king where the word of God was proclaimed. First 10 years would have been Wonderful i got to put a, a map up on the screen. You're going to see my uh, wonderful uh, um, word art. It's not a word art. What is it? Paint. Uh. Ah, continue, Jerem. Um. Why did I do this? Uh, so this is just a... I've taken Google Maps. Uh, so this is a Google Map currently, and I'll just put the historical context of what's going on here. And so... Uh, Josiah was killed by Pharaoh in the Battle of Megiddo in 609 BC. So, five years before the book of Daniel starts, Pharaoh, bottom left, Egypt, travels up towards a place called Carchemish, which is on currently the border between Syria and Turkey. On his way up there, King Josiah from Jerusalem tries to stop him. He meets him in Megiddo. They fight, Pharaoh kills Josiah and then continues up to Carchemish. Meantime, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has traveled from Babylon, which is currently just south of Baghdad, traveled up there to Carchemish. He's currently defeating the Assyrians. Pharaoh goes to join him, and Nebuchadnezzar crushes him. There's such a decisive battle in history that effectively sets up Nebuchadnezzar as the most powerful man in the known world. So this is what's happened. So Jerusalem has been, uh, Josiah's been defeated by Egypt. Egypt has met Babylon in Carchemish. Babylon has won. And this is where we pick things up in Daniel 1, chapter 1. A little bit of history. Daniel 1, 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure in the house of his God. So after defeating Egypt, up in Carchemish, uh, Nebuchadnezzar travels down to Jerusalem, destroys Jerusalem, partially destroys Jerusalem, and takes a bunch of captives' slave and takes them back to um, Babylon, And part of these Hebrews are Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Daniel was about 15 years old. About 15 years old when he was carried off into exile. I think I might have, before I studied this, I thought Daniel was probably 30, maybe 40. 15. He was a teenager when his whole world was upset, and he was grabbed and taken off by the most powerful leader in the world. Nebuchadnezzar then directs the chief of his of his officials, Daniel one verses three and four, to select some of the exiles without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed and quick to understand. Kind of the Matt Swanks of uh, Hebrews time. <laughs> this is like the best of the best, the sharpest, the most promising of the Jewish stock. He takes the best and he takes them captive and into King Nebuchadnezzar's service. And Nebuchadnezzar has a plan. Most powerful man in the world. He's just partially destroyed Jerusalem. He's taken the best young Hebrews. Now he wants to remake them. Now he wants to mold them in the fashion of Babylon. And he has a three-pronged approach to this. Firstly, Nebuchadnezzar takes these men and he teaches them the language and literature of the Babylonians and at first reading you might think no biggie language and literature it's probably going to be helpful for Daniel to learn a bit of Palevu Babylon in Babylon right like it's going to be helpful for him to get along and to understand this but what this means we find out exactly what this language and literature means a few chapters later in Daniel 5 where uh, a young woman is talking to King Nebuchadnezzar and said that you appointed Daniel chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Daniel is not just taking evening classes. He is learning the occult. He's learning astrology. He's learning about omens. He's learning, essentially, witchcraft. This is what Daniel, 15-year-old Daniel, is being indoctrinated with. You know, when I think of Babylon, you might too. I always think of David Gray's song, you know, like, oh, it's a summer song to chill out to. But this is no, this is no cozy, uh, you know, all the hanging gardens of Babylon. This is the most evil, idolatrous, wicked place in history. At the end of all things, and we read in Revelation, the angels of God are crying out. They're, they're celebrating the end of evil and do you know what they say? They say, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Fallen is Babylon. And they're not saying the city. They're saying evil, sinfulness, the end of all things disgusting. And to, to put a picture to it, they say Babylon. This is the place that Daniel has been taken to. Babylon. So he's beginning to be indoctrinated. The second thing Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do was to strip them of their Hebrew identity and give them new names. Daniel, his name in the Hebrew means God is my judge. And he's given the name Belteshazzar. That means Bel's prince, prince of demons. Hananiah is changed to mean beloved by the Lord. His name is changed to Shadrach, which means illumined by the sun god. Mishael is changed to Meshach. His name meant who is like God. And his name is changed to who is like the God, Venus. Azariah is changed from the Lord is my help to Abednego, servant of Nego. And quick point, it's not Abednego. It's Abednego, okay? That's just, just a little thing. It's just a little thing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's not a Abednego. He's Abednego, okay? Let's get this right, people. Let's get this right. I bear Nego, servants of Nego, servants of a demon god. How awful! How awful! That would be like taking my wife's beautiful name, which means Gabriel, means God is my strength, and calling her daughter of Satan. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do. He's trying to chip away at their identities, trying to remake them into Babylonians. They're indoctrinated. Their names are changed. And now their lifestyle is about to be changed. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel drew a line and he drew it at eating the food. Now, I'll admit, when I read this for the first time, I thought, Daniel, that is a weird place to draw your line, man. If I was in Babylon, I probably would have been like, no way am I learning witchcraft. No way am I learning about the occult and astrology. Who's a Capricorn? I don't care. I don't want to know. (laughs) And then then changing my name, I quite like my name, Jeremy. I don't really know what it means, but I like the sound of it. (laughs) But no, you're not going to call me son of the devil. No way. Roast beef? Heck yes. I love a bit of that. I think, you know, the Persian wine would have been fantastic. But Daniel drew his line there. Why? It's really encouraging for me to see commentators just agree, theologians agree on this point. Here's essentially what they said. They said Daniel could suffer under a new name because he knew his identity. He knew he was, call me what you want. I know who I am. He could endure the education and training because he knew the God whom he trusted. And he knew that even though he would have been learning all this rubbish, rubbish, he could filter it through what he knew about God. He knew truth. And so it was easy for him to be able to go, that's lies, that's rubbish. I can understand that stuff, but I know it's not true. And he drew the line at eating food and wine because in this culture, to share a meal, to take food and wine from the king's table would be to show fellowship and friendship with Babylon. It would have been to say, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, we depend on you. We rely on you. We are with you because we are eating from your table. And Daniel says, no. 15-year-old Daniel. 15-year-old Daniel goes to the most powerful man in the world, his chief official, and says, no. I'm not going to defile myself with your food. Bold, no compromise. He knew where he stood. Daniel, like Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty-five, says, Daniel chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And so Daniel says to the chief official, I'm not going to defile myself with the meat and wine. Give us vegetables and water for 10 days and see how we go and so they are given vegetables and water for 10 days and at the end of the 10 days it says Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael they looked healthier, the text says fatter probably a good thing um, than the other guys who ate the meat and wine and so the chief official said fine you guys can continue to eat that food at the end of the service they're taken before the king And they're compared to every other young man who's gone through the same training. And Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are head and shoulders above the rest of them. Head and shoulders. The king finds them, it says, ten times better than any other person in his whole kingdom. God has given them wisdom and knowledge and understanding. He's shown them favor because they devoted themselves to him and would not defile themselves by having fellowship with Babylon. So what are we to learn from all this? That we should all become vegans? No, that's not the point. Daniel's not giving us a nutrition or a diet lesson here. There's more going on here. What Daniel is teaching us, what God is teaching us through the example of Daniel, is that even though he was in Babylon, he was not of Babylon. And for us, we are in this world but we are not of this world. Daniel drew his line and resolved not to cross it. They didn't compromise their beliefs. And it just, I just find it remarkable that Daniel was 15 years old. 15 years old. Not a man yet. Grown up in his parents' home in Jerusalem And then the most powerful man in the world comes and destroys his city. Maybe his father was killed. He's dragged off in chains to be captive in a foreign nation. 15. And he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to show fellowship with Babylon. He was away from all that he knew. No one would have known. He could have had the meat. He could have got drunk on the wine, but he didn't. The character that was shaped in this young man of those 15 years was such that when faced with overwhelming pressure to compromise and to reject his faith, to reject God, he says no. How many of our young people in this community would be able to do the same? Thrown into Babylon and facing that pressure to conform, how many would be able to do the same? And the thing is, they are in Babylon. We are in Babylon of sorts. And the pressure on our young people, particularly, to conform and, and to look like and be like the world can be overwhelming. And this is why it is so important for us at The Street that what we do for, those, for the kids' own programs, for Massive, for Squad, it's not childcare. It's not babysitting. We are doing everything we can as a church. And remember a few weeks ago, I got the church up on stage and there were six of us. So when I say church, I mean the church. What we want is to disciple our young people from from the cradle to the grave. We want people to be followers of Jesus, to grow every single day in their knowledge of His Word and their love of Him and their worship and their generosity and being filled with the Spirit. What we do in Kids Zone, what we do in the preschool isn't just so parents can have a morning off. It's to train them in the way they should go so when they are old they will not depart from it. And every part of our church community here is to grow parents to be the primary disciple makers of children. And grandparents to come alongside. And people who don't have kids to come alongside and encourage. It's not that it's all about the kids, but they are growing up in Babylon. And that's why it just guts me that we are battling for people to volunteer to serve in kids zone. We're struggling for people to, we almost can't run an intermediates program at the moment because there's not enough people willing to go, you know what? I love these kids. These kids are the next generation of children, of Christians. What could I do to help disciple them? They are in Babylon. And we as a church community can't get enough people to go, actually, I want to invest in them. I want to love them. I want to grow them in their faith this is part of what it means to be a family church help each other in every way that we can he was 15 years old and in the face of an overwhelming pressure he stood his ground so how do we do the same how do we need to do the same where do we draw our lines every day we draw lines every day we need to draw lines we need to know what lines we are not going to cross in this world. You know, a family member of mine recently was asked by her boss to lie for her and say, "Oh, when you get asked if I was working yesterday, just say yes I was, even though I wasn't." Over uh, pressure from an employer to lie and cover her, and this family member of mine just said no. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to. I'm not going to compromise my integrity and my beliefs to lie for you. Stood up against her boss. There could have been repercussions. There wasn't. Praise the Lord. She drew her line. She didn't cross it. A few years ago, I was working for for an organisation, and um, there there were major problems in the leadership organization was going in a way that Gabrielle and I just couldn't stay on board with anymore. We resolved, we drew our line, we said we will do everything we can, we will pray for a year, we'll do everything we can from inside this organization to effect change, but if this point comes and nothing has changed, we will resign. That point came and I had to resign. I didn't have a job to go to, I didn't have an income after that. We came to a point where we said, this is where it stops, Integrity matters. Devotion to God matters. There are lines that we must draw, that we won't cross, that shows the world we're different. That we don't depend on what the world offers, that we depend on God because what's our theme? He is sovereign. He is sovereign over everything. I was okay without an income for a few weeks, I knew God would provide. I went and did some gardening for an old man down the road, it was fine. God provides. We draw our lines. I could pick a million different examples. There will be amazing stories of people in this room who've drawn their lines and have suffered for it, who've drawn their lines and haven't suffered for it. Maybe even now you're thinking, oh yeah, I remember a time when I did this. Maybe for some of you you're thinking, man, I remember a time where I crossed that line. You have that feeling of regret of going, oh, I just wish, I wish I didn't do that. It's never too late to redraw it. And it is a powerful testimony when you do. Because if you redraw that line and someone says, oh, mate, but, you, but that wasn't a problem last time. There was a moment then for a testimony to say, look, I compromised last time, but I love the Lord and I'm not gonna do that again. Where do we draw our lines? You know, it all comes from knowing that this is in our home that this Babylon, that this exile that we're in isn't our home. Hebrews thirteen fourteen says, we do not have here an enduring city, but we are looking forward to the city that is to come. This postmodern culture we live in is in a way our exile. Culture has moved so far from Christian morals and ideals and practices and, and, and honoring God. We are the exiles now in a way. We can feel overwhelmed. The pressure from colleagues, from friends, from society, from, from things that are just shifting so fast, we can feel pressure to conform. But we have one key difference that Daniel didn't have. Daniel was exiled in Babylon. We're in a sort of postmodern exile at the moment. But you know what the difference is, our exile is post resurrection Our exile is post the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. His spirit has been poured out. You are not Daniel alone in Babylon, alone, just with the memory of the Torah. You are here now, 2021. The spirit of God has been poured out. If you are a follower of Jesus here today, if you love him and you've given your life over to him, his spirit lives within you. You are not alone. You have everything that you need to draw that line in faith. You have everything that you need to fight back and push back against the powers of Babylon. You have everything that you need to say, no, I love the Lord. Come what may, this is where I stand. Galatians 5, 16, 17, And so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. We live by the spirit. And over the next 10 weeks, we're going to see time and again that Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael resolve to deny themselves the delicacies of Babylon, to push back against the culture, and to remind themselves. This is not where we belong. This is not who we are. We belong to Yahweh and we will honor him. And they stood head and shoulders above the rest. When you stand your ground, you stand out and bring glory to God. And God honored these guys for what they did. Where will we draw our lines? Are we living by the Spirit or by the flesh? We're about to take communion and just as Jamie and, um, sorry, as Kylie and the team come up, just take a moment to ponder. Are we living by the Spirit or by the flesh? If you are a follower of Jesus here today, you have His Holy Spirit living in you. God dwells in you by His Spirit. You have everything that you need for a life of godliness. Everything that you need to be able to stand against the pressure of this post-modern culture, to stand against the overwhelming, at times, odds and say no. And you see, the interesting thing is, Daniel's not prescriptive. Some of you here today will have lines that you will draw that will be different to other people in this room. And that is largely going to depend on your context and on your workplace. But what we all need to do is to go, what does the word of God say? What does the word of God say? We just spent four weeks looking at the at the doctrine of Scripture and how important it is that we build our life on this book. And so over the next few moments, just as you prepare your heart to take communion, say, God, have I overstepped a line? Have I failed to draw a line? God, show me where I'm taking the delicacies of Babylon. Show me where I'm having fellowship with the world. And then, Lord, forgive me. I repent of it. And show me what you would have me do.